Thanks for joining us for this recording from the Southdale Church of the Nazarene in Anderson, Indiana. I'm Pastor Brad Burrow, and I'm glad you're listening. We're starting the season of Epiphany this year with a series of messages from the Gospel of Matthew. Together, we're learning more about who Jesus is and what that means for us, his followers. Join us as we dive into the good news about Jesus as told by his disciple, Matthew. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have your Bibles, there should be Bibles in the pews there. Uh, you can feel free to use your telephone or your tablet. We like to recommend the Version Bible app. I don't know if you ever look at your usage stats on Version Bible app. I'm a little bit depressed. Last week it said, uh, last, well it would have been last Monday it said, I had been in the Version Bible app 363 days out of the year. Now I've only been in the Bible, I think, seven days this year, or six days this year. It's like I lost all my progress, but it's a fresh, clean start. So we, we like, you know, we like the Version Bible app. If you have that, feel free to use that. But one way or another, find your way to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, and I'd like to read the beginning of that chapter with you this morning. Matthew writes, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for that, that's what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod called for the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed, and on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which breathes life. As we read your word, we sense your spirit, your divine breath at work in us, making your word come alive and making us come alive in your word. Would you do that right now? So we study your word today. Would you pour out your spirit on us? Make your word come alive in us and help us to come alive in your word. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. 
Amen. It's good to see you. Some of you I missed last week. Um, That's kind of typical on the first Sunday after Christmas. Attendance almost always goes down. So if you were not here last Sunday morning, um, I just want to bring you up to speed. Last Sunday I laid out a challenge before us. Uh, I presented a challenge to the church that I'm calling our 2019 New Testament Challenge. In it I challenge us to contend for the faith. And we said we were going to contend for the faith in four specific ways. By reading through the New Testament together. And we're going to do that by reading one chapter per weekday throughout this year. We'll read through the New Testament together this year. Second, we're going to contend for the faith by sharing our faith with others, at least one witness per week. We're going to join together in the fellowship of the church by sharing together at least one meal per month. And some of you got that done already last Wednesday night when we had... Family ministry nine. One meal per month. And then, most importantly, we're going to contend by the, for the faith by remaining in constant, continual prayer. By seeking to pray in the Spirit that God would guide us by His Spirit and help us to keep in step with His Spirit. Now, after I laid out that challenge last week, somebody approached me during this week and asked me a question, and I thought it was a pretty good one. I, I was asked this week... Um, Especially in light of all those numbers, you know, one chapter a day, one per week, one per month. And in light of all that, aren't we, aren't we kind of boarding on the very edge of works righteousness here, Pastor? Aren't we, aren't we, aren't we suggesting some sort of system of legalism? And I thought that was a good question. I thought that was a good question. And so, so just to make sure there's no confusion here, can I just be clear? That's not at all what I'm trying to suggest in this. I, I don't. This is too important for me not to make a mis, to, for, is too important for me to make a mistake and allow you to misunderstand. That's not what I'm suggesting. I am not in any way trying to suggest that if you'll read one chapter a day and and talk to one person per week about your faith and eat with the church one time a month that somehow you can earn God's favor. You know that, right? You know that, right? We know that we are saved by grace through faith. And this is not by works. It is the gift, the free gift of God. We know that, right? We know that any salvation we experience in our lives is accomplished for us by the completed work of Jesus on our behalf and not by any works that we do for Him. That's clear, isn't it? I hope so. I hope so. I also wanted to be clear that I don't believe that that just by reading one chapter a week and and talking to one person about Jesus, we can somehow fulfill the duty of obedience that we owe to God in gratitude for what He has done for us in Christ Jesus. Not that we could ever repay Him for what He has done for us, but that doesn't even begin to be enough to say thank you for all that He's done for us in Christ. So I'm not attempting to say that either. However, I do believe that we have to start somewhere. I believe that we have to start somewhere. And if a measurable goal like one chapter per weekday or or one meal per month, if if a measurable goal like that can move us from being passive, passive observers of what Jesus is doing to active followers of Jesus who because they believe in Jesus, they do the things that Jesus is doing, If a measurable metric can do that for us, if it can get us moving, then it's a good thing. 
And it's in that spirit that I want to suggest this to you, that we might begin to follow Jesus in these ways. Lastly, probably most important to me personally, is this. While it might not have a catchy catchphrase like the others, while it might not have a measurable metric, I really do believe that the fourth one of those is the most important. If we remain in constant prayer, that's the most important thing for us. If we really do that, if we will really orient our lives so that we become constantly aware of God's presence and continually attentive to God's guidance, everything else will take care of itself. So please don't ignore that just because you can't check it off the list. Make that the priority. Remaining in constant prayer in the Spirit. If you've been following along in our reading plan and and if you wonder what chapter we're on each day, you can find that on our Facebook page. You can also find it in the bulletin. We print that reading plan there as well. But uh, um, if you're following that reading plan with us, we're now four chapters into the New Testament. We've read the book of Jude, started with that, and then the first three chapters from the Gospel of Matthew. And and if you have Facebook, you might have noticed that we are taking a shot at posting uh, videos throughout the week to to help us dive a little bit deeper into the text and encourage us to keep that reading going. In fact, if you've not liked our page, if you have not liked our page on Facebook, check it out. You can find us facebook.com/southdalenaz, or you can just search for the Southdale Church of the Nazarene. And as you do that, feel free to react and respond to those videos because it's easier to keep making them if we think people are getting something out of them. Also, if you've got a question, if you're reading and you've got a question, go check out one of the videos we have on that week's, or the video we might have on that day's chapter and, and ask that question. And if there's not a video, just ask it on the page. I'd love to see us begin discussing throughout the week the things that we are reading together. And also, if you find something helpful or inspiring about those videos, feel free to share them with others. It's as easy as clicking the share button down at the bottom of the post. And every time you do that, you help us get the word out. And I'm not just talking about getting getting word about our church and the things that are happening at our church out. Every time you share those videos, you are helping us get the word out to other people. So, so feel free to do that. And those of you that have this week, thank you for doing that. And if you missed a sermon, if you want to know what all this is about, you can listen to our sermons online. Visit our website, southdalenaz.com, or subscribe to our podcast. And you, can listen to, you can listen to me talk pretty much anywhere you want. In a lot of places you probably don't want. Listen online. I think that's enough advertisements. Can I start preaching? Is that okay? Let's dive into this text. I told you at the start of the service that this is one of my favorite holidays of the year. Uh, January 6th, Epiphany. It is the end of the 12 days of Christmas tide, and it's the beginning of the season of Epiphany. Uh, during Advent, we anticipate. Advent is about anticipation. It's about looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, not just the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, but it's about remembering that the same Jesus that was born as a baby in Bethlehem one day is coming back to this earth as the reigning king, and every single day we are we're one day closer. Every single day we are one day closer to his return. 
Advent's about anticipation. Christmas is about celebration. Christmas is about celebrating the fact that Jesus was born, and, and with that birth, God, the eternal creator God, the ancient of days, becomes flesh and dwells among us. And in him we can, in him, the eternal one and only Son, the only begotten of the Father, we can see his glory, the glory of God's one and only. Advent's about anticipation, Christmas is about celebration, epiphany. Epiphany is about realization. The season that starts today on this holiday that shares its name, Epiphany is a season when we realize who this baby really is. We sing at Christmas time, What child is this? Epiphany is about answering that question. As its name implies, during the season of Epiphany, the, the meaning of the incarnation begins to dawn on us. And it becomes increasingly clear to us who Jesus is until finally on Ash Wednesday it brings us to the place where struck by the magnitude of the fact that God became flesh and dwelt among us, we realize we're going to have to change. And that leads us into the season of Lent, a season of, of reflection and repentance that culminates as we gather around the cross. Remember what God did for us there on Calvary. When Jesus died for us, then we gather at the empty tomb to celebrate the fact that this one who has died and has been buried has now been raised again. I love this season. I love this calendar. But I love the season of realization, of epiphany. And here we are at the start of this season of realization the season where we try to understand who Jesus is and, and we're opening up the book of Matthew together. Well, Matthew might be the first book canonically in your New Testament. It's not the first book chronologically in your New Testament. Does that make sense? Well, it might be the first, it might be on the first pages of your New Testament. It's not the first book to have been written in the New Testament. That's what I'm trying to say here. But while it might not be the very first book chronologically to have been written, it was written very early. The Gospel of Matthew was written by, by an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus Christ, one of Jesus' twelve disciples. And it was written during the lifetime of those first followers of Jesus. From the very beginning of the church, Christians have attributed this Gospel to, to Matthew one of the twelve disciples from the little town of Capernaum, whom Jesus said, hey, come follow me. And Matthew left everything and began following Jesus. And that attribution, saying Matthew wrote Matthew, isn't really all that doubtful. It's not spelled out in the pages of the Gospel itself. There's no, there's no uh, note in the flyleaf that says, hey, I wrote this, signed Matthew. There's nothing like that in Matthew's Gospel. The letters are signed, but not, not Matthew's Gospel. However, from the very earliest days, the church have, has called this book the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, from the very earliest days. It's not like they waited a few hundred years and had this book floating around and says, we've got to call it something, pick an author. 
Now, from the very beginning, this was called the Gospel according to Matthew. And there's never, we don't have a single copy of this book that is not called the Gospel of Matthew. There is no point in the early church where anyone else was credited with having written these words, and there is no one in the early church who questioned whether Matthew wrote these words. So it's pretty certain. Of course, it's become popular of recent days, if you study the Bible, to doubt those things that the church has known from the beginning. But I find no reason to doubt that this was written by the disciple Matthew. What's more, it appears to have been written, not just by Matthew, one of Jesus' Jewish disciples, it also appears to have been written primarily for a Jewish audience. And I don't even come close to having time to talk about that today. If you want to pin me down after service and say, why do you think that, Pastor? I'd be willing to explain that to you. But just for this morning, the biggest reason is all the times Matthew quotes the Hebrew Scriptures. From the very beginning, more so than the other Gospels, from the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew seems absolutely intent on on proving that Jesus really is the Jewish Messiah. And he quotes all of these prophecies about the coming Messiah to prove that Jesus is the one the prophets talked about. And so it only makes sense, if this is what Matthew is trying to prove, it only makes sense that he's trying to prove it to people who are looking for a Messiah and who know the Hebrew Scriptures. In other words, he's writing to primarily to an audience of Jews. So Matthew is helpful to us as we enter into the season of Epiphany. So we try to understand who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who has been born King of the Jews. What's more, here we are on this day, Epiphany, not just the season, but the holiday. This day devoted to remembering the visit of the Magi. And just this week, we happen to read Matthew chapter 2, the chapter of the New Testament that tells their story. It's almost like somebody planned it. So dive in. Matthew skips over almost entirely the birth of Jesus Christ. Matthew tells us how the angel came and told Joseph that Mary was going to have a baby. And then Matthew says that after Mary had a baby, Joseph named that baby Jesus, just like the angel had said. That's pretty much Matthew's announcement of the birth of Jesus. In chapter 2, in the part we read, Matthew does tell us a few more facts about Jesus' birth. Matthew tells us that he was born in, in Bethlehem, in Judea. And that's important because not very far into the story, people are going to start calling Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth because Nazareth is where he grew up. Jesus of Nazareth because that's where he began to work. They knew him as Jesus of Nazareth, but Matthew wants us to know that he was born in Bethlehem in the city of David. Matthew also tells us that Jesus was born during the reign of King Herod. In this case, the King Herod is Herod the Great. Herod the Great, the Idumean, who became king not by birth. King of the Jews, not by birth, but by Roman appointment in the year, somewhere between the year 37 and 36 B.C. After becoming king in 37, 36 B.C., King Herod reigns until his death in what we would call the year 4 B.C., And it's during that time frame, Matthew says, Jesus is born. After the birth of Jesus, though, Matthew starts giving us some more details. He tells us about the visit of some foreign dignitaries who recognized that a royal birth had taken place. Matthew calls them the Magi. 
It's the plural form of the Greek word magos, which actually is not a Greek word. It's a Persian word originally. They're magi, magi. But what is that? Sometimes we call them wise men. The reason we call them wise men probably is because the Old Testament, when it describes people in these sorts of positions, the Old Testament frequently uses the word hachamim, uh, which, uh, hachamim, which means wise ones. Uh, the first time the word appears is in Genesis chapter 41, where we see that the Pharaoh has some hachamim serving him alongside his hartumim, his, his court magicians. Wise men probably comes from that Hebrew word. Sometimes we call them kings, like the song we open the service with, We Three Kings. That's not the greatest word to describe these men. For the most part, uh, these magi, these hachamim, were not, were not uh, royalty themselves. Instead, they worked as, as royal advisors. Sometimes they received royal honors, uh, like Joseph, he, Joseph was a hachamim in, in Egypt, uh, and Pharaoh put royal honors on Joseph, but Joseph was not royalty. We see the same thing happen to Daniel in Babylon, but they're not kings. They might have been honored as royalty, but they weren't actually kings. That word kings appears to come from the, the prophecy from Isaiah that we read earlier in the service or Isaiah says, one day the kings of the earth will be drawn to the light that's about to dawn in Jerusalem. We call them kings because that's what Isaiah called them, but that's not really what they were. Not royalty themselves, but afforded royal honors. They were known for their wisdom and their access to a secret quasi-magical knowledge. And as such, they were hired as advisors to the royalty. Today, we might call them royal viziers. Today, we might call them royal viziers, and we might imagine we might imagine a picture of Jafar from Disney's Aladdin. Have you ever seen Jafar? No? A magi. A magi. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, hold on a second there, Pastor. Wasn't Jafar the bad guy in that story? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked, as George would say. Now that you mention it, that's a pretty that's a pretty good description, a pretty good picture of Matthew's how Matthew's original audience would have envisioned these magi, magicians from the east, practitioners of forbidden arts like astrology. If you read the Old Testament itself, most of the time the there are some Hebrew hachamim who rise to prominence, but most of the time the the sages, the the royal advisors, the magi of the Old Testament are the bad guys in the story. They are the they are the liars, they are the schemers, they are the imitators. Think Moses uh, throwing the staff down, and the magi are there to imitate that that miracle. They are the imitators that the real heroes of the story have to overcome or outwit. And so the Magi are not exactly the kind of protagonist you'd expect in a story being written by a Jewish author for a Jewish audience. Yet here they are at the start of Matthew's story, coming to honor the newborn Messiah with their gifts. When they arrive in Jerusalem, they head naturally to Herod's palace. Oh, where else would you look for, for a royal birth but in the palace? Once they get there, they ask Herod, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? 
you watched our Facebook video this week on Matthew chapter 2, you know that's a pretty important title for Matthew's gospel. It's the one he uses to bookend the story he's telling. It, it appears in two passages, three times in two passages in Matthew's gospel. Once here in the second chapter of Matthew's gospel, and twice more in the second to last chapter in Matthew's gospel. In other words, Matthew wraps the entire story he's telling in this title, Jesus is the King of the Jews. It's significant because it reflects what we said Matthew's purpose was in writing. He's trying to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. But if you read carefully, it's not the Jews in the story who recognize that Jesus is the King of the Jews. Here in this chapter, it's the Magi. These outsiders, these, these pagan magicians who recognize the truth about Jesus that Herod and the palace staff haven't noticed. A king has been born right beneath Herod's nose. And Herod didn't notice. That's crazy to think of because Herod, Herod has been nervously searching the palace for anyone who might prove or pose a threat to him. And he has been murdering, or having murdered, everyone, anyone, including his own family members, on whom his suspicion comes to rest. But while Herod is searching his palace for threats, these magi are searching the heavens. And they see a birth announcement written by the hand of the one who hung the stars themselves. They see a star, they say, at its rising, which portends the birth of a king. Herod, who worries constantly about anything that might upset the, the precarious position he enjoys, is completely clueless about the arrival of the one whose birth will turn the world upside down. When the Magi say, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? Herod is understandably troubled. <laughs> he lives every day with the insecurity of knowing that he was not born king, he was appointed king. He knows that his position is given to him by the Romans, and everyone will remember that. And that is something that nothing, that is something that nothing, not even a string of marriages to Jewish princesses could change. He will always be the king that the Romans appointed. And Herod knows a king by birth trumps a king by appointment any day of the week in the minds of the people. So Herod was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. Jerusalem, who for the most part had hated Herod every bit as much as Herod hated them. But they knew what it was like to live through the mad king's paranoia and the political purges he carried out. No wonder they were disturbed when Herod was disturbed. So Herod calls in his royal advisors, not the magi from the east. No, he calls in the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he demands from them information about where the Messiah is going to be born. Yet these religious leaders seem every bit as clueless about Jesus as the king and the palace staff are. All the, they know the right answers. If you're looking for a king of the Jews, you might as well start in, in David's home city. After all, that's what the prophet Micah said, that, that one day in Bethlehem a ruler would be born who would shepherd Israel, whose origins stretched all the way back to the Yamai Olam, to the, to the ancient of days. They know all that stuff. 
But while they know the facts about the Messiah, they know nothing about the one to whom those facts point. That might be important. Should I say that again? They know all the facts about Jesus. But they know nothing about the one to whom those facts point. Be said of us, could it? So the Magi come with a question. But the real question, the real question in Matthew chapter 2 is who knows? Who knows the truth about this child? God is making the truth abundantly clear for everyone to, be, to see. For centuries, the prophets have been writing about it in the scriptures. And here of late, God himself has been writing about it in the very sky. God is making the truth abundantly clear. The question is, who will notice? And the answer, at least for this chapter, is the Magi. So they make their way to the little town of Bethlehem. It might be called the city of David, but it's not much of a city. Uh, scholars tell us in Jesus' day it was probably a city, maybe, maybe with a population of 300. Of late, it had been growing because Herod was building a, building a brand new palace just down the road. The Herodian, about three miles away, brought jobs to the area, but it's still just a tiny, tiny little village. And it's there miraculously. I can't explain how, but somehow the star they had seen at its rising leads them to the exact house where the Holy Family is. I don't know how a star leads somebody to a single house. It'd take a miracle, wouldn't it? Well, God does those, doesn't he? Star leads them to the place where the child... Can you imagine what that scene must have been like? These magi, so perfectly at home in the greatest palaces of Persia, these magi, so conspicuously important that they are given an audience with Herod himself. These magi leave behind the palaces and temples of Jerusalem and head south to the tiny little village of Bethlehem, the house of bread. And there these men who dared to, dared undaunted to enter into the, the splendor of Herod's palace now hesitate in front of a, a common peasant home with a sense of expectant wonder. These men who just hours before had unflinchingly stood before Herod the Great, the King of Jerusalem, now bow in awestruck reverence before a young mother and her little child. I don't know if you were paying attention to the video that we played earlier during the prelude. And I know there are a lot of things that are probably wrong with that video. There are parts of the picture that it, I don't know, tries to represent artistically that aren't quite right. It mangles the timeline, I know. It probably misrepresents the setting. When the Magi arrive, the look on Mary's face, somehow I think the video gets that part right. Because there in that humble home, they offer the most lavish of gifts. 
gifts presented to royalty. Gold and incense and myrrh. And they place them before this mother and this child and all she can do is look in amazement. Somehow I think the video gets that part right. Gold and incense and myrrh. Gifts fit for a king. If you're a careful reader of the Bible, that's not the first place somebody's brought gifts like this to a king. Millennia earlier, the queen of Sheba brought these same things to to Jesus' ancestor Solomon, richest man in the world. What do you get? What do you get the richest man in the world? You bring him gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold and spices, we're told in the book of Kings. And now these magi, magi present these same gifts to this little child. I have no idea if anyone there that day had any idea how appropriate those gifts were. I I highly doubt that the Magi understood the significance of what they brought. But we do. We sang about it earlier, if you were paying attention. They bring him gold, the gift that declares that Jesus is king. King of kings and Lord of lords. They bring him frankincense, the scent of the priesthood. The the scent they burn in the temple to symbolize the unseen presence of God in their midst. But this day, it doesn't symbolize God's unseen presence. It announces God is here with us. And myrrh. A bitter perfume used, among other things, to prepare a body for burial. Foreshadows the, the sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying that will come later in the story. Gifts that announce that this child is king and God and sacrifice. Even the Magi, the people in the story who knew the most about who this child was, probably probably couldn't possibly have fully grasped the magnitude of the gifts they brought him. But they did it anyway. They might not have understood all everything that they were doing, but they did it anyway. And they come and they prostrate themselves before the Christ child and they offer him the gifts that testify to the truth of who he is. And yeah, we live on the other side of the story. We live on this side of the cross and the empty tomb. We understand what those magi couldn't even begin to grasp. We know who this child is and what he means. But the question really isn't how much do we understand. The question really isn't about our perception. It's about our posture. That might be important. Can I say that again? The question really isn't about our perception. It's about our posture. It's not about our discernment, it's about our disposition. It's not about our science or our scholarship, it's about our our submission. You see, when the Magi come to the child, they bow before him. They bend themselves, at least for this moment, they bend themselves 
to His will and His pleasure. Could this be said of us? I can't help but remember back in Jerusalem we have plenty of proof that just because you know the most about Jesus doesn't mean you know Jesus. Back in Jerusalem we have priests who know all the facts about the Messiah but don't recognize the Messiah at all and certainly do not bow themselves to his pleasure and his will. So it's not about what we know. It's not about our perception. It is about our posture. Have we bowed our hearts and our heads and our lives before Him? This One who is King and God and sacrifice? This has been a live recording from our Sunday morning service. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to join us, we gather for worship every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. at 5.30 West 53rd Street in Anderson, Indiana. You can find out more about us online at SouthdaleNAZ.com. Again, that website is SouthdaleNAZ.com. Now go into peace and be a blessing.